Now, if you are a Christian and you've been redeemed through Jesus Christ, through the blood of the Lamb, I would say you shouldn't despise the long readings of, um, that we have in the Scriptures of these long lists of names of saints that you might say, well, what does this matter to me? What does this long genealogy matter to me? Well, one day, you might want your name in a, in a particular list, wouldn't you? There's a book of life. God has recorded uh, in, those, in that book of life all the names of his holy people, not just those who were members of the covenant faith, but those who are the elect. So in God's book, we should not despise that list, especially if we belong to him. If you want to read more about that book of life, you can look later, not now, but look later at Revelation 20, 11 through 15. This uh, book written to Nehemiah was a book that mentions many of God's great blessings given to the people during the days of Nehemiah. God's favor, God's hand of favor was upon Nehemiah as he went before King Artaxerxes. And what happened was he was granted permission, he was granted leave for 12 years to go and to serve as not only wall builder but governor to rebuild uh, the broken down walls and the burnt gates. And that was done in 52 days with the help of their God. And that was all accomplished in the midst of mocking. That was all done in the, even when there were death threats. That was all done when surrounded by enemies who sought to thwart that work. And yes, I believe there was even a death, uh, an assassination attempt on Nehemiah, but he didn't, he didn't go with it. Um, now, if you wonder what is the importance of this list found in chapter 11, um, it has to do with the magnitude of those walls surrounding Jerusalem. I heard one estimate is that if you could get on the top of the wall, and the wall was big enough where you could walk at the top of the par- around the parapets and walk around the entire city, I don't know if there, there was breaks in that, in that wall where you could do it, but let's just pretend that you could walk the entire circumference of the wall. It would take a four-mile walk, a four-mile walk to walk the entire circumference of that wall going around the entire city of Jerusalem at that time. That wall had been expanded in comparison to prior days. But I want us to look back at the problem with that immense wall. Nehemiah 7, 3. Go back to Nehemiah 7, 3. Um, toward the, the middle of uh, verse 3, it says, uh, Nehemiah, he mentioned the necessity to appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. What's the major problem with that? Look at verses 4 and 5. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. And turn back to chapter 11. This immense list that is mentioned here is the fruit of Nehemiah's work all the way back in chapter 7. His planning in chapter 7 didn't come to fruition until a good time later, at least a year or two later, 
Uh, I don't know the exact estimate. I tried to find exact estimates, but we know that Nehemiah was in the city helping for 12 years. And there was a great deal of, that happened between chapter 7 and 11. So it, it had to be at least enough time for them to rebuild some of the homes so that people could come back in and to dwell in the land again. Now, if we're going to apply today's text to our lives, we have to realize that the Old Testament church during this time was Judah and Israel. Now, we don't, we didn't, we don't believe that the church began with, the, with the Christ and the apostles. This was the Old Testament church. So we'll look at some of the things concerning this particular text and how it applies to us in the modern-day church. And the main focus that we're going to see in today's text is that God has ordained a division and a unity of labor. A division and a unity of labor in the church. And we'll look at first the selection process, and then secondly we'll look at this division and unity of labor. So there was a selection process here to determine who and who, who would and would not go back to Jerusalem. Now, you might say to yourself, well, man, this was Jerusalem, the holy city of David, the place where God's name was, right? Wouldn't every Jew in the whole region want to go back in Jerusalem? Well, there are a couple of things that might have, I guess, discouraged that. Some people had farmlands outside the city. And maybe they didn't have enough children and families to take care of that farmland. They might have to give up their farmland and sell their property to go back into the city to live there as a resident. Um, others were not really sure if they wanted to put their life at risk. Because if they were a man and they were going to live in Jerusalem, they would have a rotation of having to likely serve as a guard on the wall. Um, some... Um, suspected that living in Jerusalem might have been a lot more expensive than living out in the countryside. Others didn't want to move away from their family. They wanted to stay close to their families. They didn't want to separate the family by moving into Jerusalem. Um, still others, you could say, might have been what they would call country girls and gals, and they didn't want to go into the big city. They wanted to stay out in the country. And we see that today now, and especially in, in uh, central Louisiana. There's some people that would you can't get them to live in the city. They only want to live in the country. Various reasons, whatever they were, they had to make an impartial decision of who would go back into Jerusalem and who wouldn't. And we find that uh, it couldn't have favoritism over the rich and the affluent. So the way that was determined here is the casting of lots. Nehemiah determined that it would be through the casting of lots. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people... Uh, cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in, in the other cities. I truly believe that the governor's wisdom here is based upon a passage of Scripture, um, not just this particular passage, but this passage and similar passages, Proverbs 18, 18. The cast lot puts an end to strife and decides between the mighty ones. Um, we weren't very mighty, but my brother and I, when we wanted to, we both wanted to go first to doing something, and we we're playing. We would flip a coin. You get heads, I get tails. Let's flip the coin. Who gets whatever? And then we decide who goes first. All right. Um, you know, people do that sort of thing. Um, actually, in a more reverent 
way, uh, we find out uh, that there was the casting of lots even in the New Testament in choosing uh, Matthias to serve as the replacement for Judas. But beyond that, we see we don't see much in the New Testament about the casting of lots elsewhere. But still, we could find that even in modern society, there are still practices of using lots or lotteries of sorts for determining things. I've heard it, I don't know if it's all only in Louisiana, but I've heard of this case of a new charter school opens in the community. Well, you might have, a, you might have 800 kids who want to go, but there's only 400 openings. So they have to do a lottery system where certain people are randomly selected to go and others are not. So that way, not, you know, it, that way it's impartial who gets to go or not. Um, but I want us to examine a couple of passages in the New Testament concerning how we are to make important spiritual decisions. I don't believe that this text or other texts concerning lots are ones in which we are to use to make important decisions. Uh, two passages there in your outline. Uh, one is Ephesians 5.17. It says, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Well, how do you do that? Do you close your eyes and open your Bible and stick your finger down and then read a verse? Well, that doesn't, that's not the way we should do it. We should examine Holy Scripture. Uh, a passage that we need to look at is uh, Romans 12, 2. Turn there. Keep your place in Nehemiah, but turn to Romans 12, 2. This is how you are to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Is by being conformed not to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So if you're going to determine where you want to go to church, don't flip a coin and say, well, if I flip, if it's tails, I go to this one. If it's heads, I go to this one. Or roll a dice out of five church, or six churches to pick a particular church. Instead, let the word of God guide you. Others um, are told, go back, to, uh, go back to Nehemiah. Others are told, we are told in Nehemiah 11, they didn't want to wait around. And they didn't want to wait to see whether they became one of the ten who were randomly chosen. It says that they volunteered. Look at verse 2. It says, The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Uh, you could say such people were patriots. They loved their city. They loved the city of Jerusalem. They loved what it represented. They loved the temple. And they wanted to defend it with their lives. But I think those who went back and who volunteered, they were likely more than just men who guarded. There were others as well. Uh, those who did the work of guards or guards for the wall were not just able to do it by themselves. They needed the support of a community. Our first uh, glimpse back uh, at verse 3 tells us the sorts of people who went back to live in Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, each lived on his own property in their cities. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. 
Now, I don't know if you caught this, but you might have, I think it's important to note, you've probably heard me talking about this whole time we've been going through Nehemiah, talking about Judah, the people of Judah, the region of Judah, because this was the region of Judah. Judah had, its, you could say, its capital, so to say, was Jerusalem. But here, in verse 3, it mentions the Israelites, along with the priests and Levites. Now, the word in the Hebrew here, the word in Hebrew here is actually Israel singular, not Israelites plural, and it's correctly uh, given in the, the King James Version and the ESV. But what is the name here mentioned of the Israelites? Isn't this the people of Judah? Now, some say it could be a generic term concerning the people of Israel, which would have been Judah and Israel together. But I believe uh, this, and some commentators say that this is the glimpse of the, reun the reunifying of the two divided tribes. So it wasn't just Judah anymore. This was Judah and Israel coming back together. They had been separated after the judgment of, um, you could say, and we for surely would say it's a judgment, of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Remember, he didn't want to listen uh, to the wise men that his father used, the, the, the wise elders who guided his father. See, Solomon wasn't wise because only himself. He was wise because he also had the counsel of an, a large number of wise elders of the people. But his son listened to some foolish young people and caused a division of the kingdom into the, uh, the Israel in the northern kingdom and Judah in the southern kingdom. But here we have a glimpse of Israel coming back in and the tribes are becoming intermingled again. Um, when you look in the New Testament and Christ comes on the scene, there's no longer Israel and Judah. It's just the, the people of God, the Israelites. They're really no longer divided any longer. Our second main point is the division and unity of labor. Today's text mentions an immense number of people of every class and occupation. It mentions that there was this great division of labor in this Old Testament church at this time. There were the heads of rulers of the provinces, you could say the nobles, the priests, the Levites and their overseers, the temple servants, the valiant warriors and their overseers, the guards, the gatekeepers, the singers and song leaders. It mentions in verse 16, there were those who took care of the outside of the temple. You could say they, they did the renovation and the, the upkeep of the outside of the temple. And there were those in charge, uh, uh, inside and outside, those in charge of the outside of the house of God, verse 16. There are those for the worship inside. Now, for any society or for any city to function, it couldn't just be what's mentioned here. It was even more. They had to be bakers and shop owners and blacksmiths and leather workers and weavers and tailors, carpenters, all sorts of people to help with the work and the establishment and the running of a city. It was a great division of labor. So all these people from every class and occupation all came together with this division of labor to support the city. But they had a unity of purpose. Their unity of purpose was to make Jerusalem magnificent again, to bring back the glory of God, to have the worship of God established again and, and peace and security from their enemies. 
Now, the New Testament as well talks about a division of labors, but especially in the, in the sense of um, directed through the ordination of, of officers. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 10 and following. Ephesians 4, 10 and following. says, uh, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes of him saying, He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. What's the end goal? Is the end goal for the church to have an ordained ministry? That's not the end goal. That's the beginning. Verse 11 says that it is for a purpose. It's for the entire body of Christ. Verses 12 through 13. God gave us the ordained ministry. Why? Including deacons. For the purpose of equipping all the saints for the work of service. To the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the statue, stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Why did God give an ordained ministry? It's for the building up of the body of Christ. Building up each and every one of you to make you equipped it's not just the minister who is to, to tell others about the gospel. It's each and every one of us are to be those who tell others the truth of the holy gospel to witness the faith of the Lord Jesus. Now, we get back to Nehemiah 11. Nehemiah 11, uh, verse 17. It mentions uh, that... I shouldn't be the only one praying necessarily. Verse 17 says this, Mathaniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, who was the leader in the beginning, uh, in the beginning of the thanksgiving at prayer, giving thanksgiving at prayer. So he wasn't the one praying. He was the one leading in the praying of thanksgiving. So when you have to remember this, when we have a church service, and I pray a congregational prayer. I'm not, I'm not praying for you all. I'm leading in prayer and we praying, we're praying together. Just as Mathaniah was not the one praying, the whole people of God were praying, but they were praying together. He was leading in prayer. Now, if you look at today's text in verse 22, I was a little dumbfounded at first when I read this because when it mentions a king making a commandment concerning the singers and the leaders of song. And I thought to myself, well, the only king that I can know of at this point in history was King Artaxerxes. He's the only king, really, at this point. And what in the world is King Artaxerxes having to do with song leaders in Jerusalem? Look at verse 22. It says, From the sons of Asaph, who were the singers uh, for the service of the house of God, uh, there was a commandment from the king concerning them. 
and a firm regulation for the song leaders day by day. What does the Persian emperor have to do with the song leaders in Jerusalem? What in the world does he care for that about? Well, to find out, you have to go to the, the chapter that built up to this. Remember, uh, Ezra builds up to what happened in, Ezra, in Nehemiah. Let's look at Ezra. Just go over one, one book prior, Ezra 6. Ezra 6, starting at verse 8. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for the elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river, and that without delay. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil. As the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them without, uh, daily, without fail, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issue a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this may the god who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of god in jerusalem i darius have issued this decree let it be called out with all diligence. Let it be carried out with all diligence. Now, Darius came before, but what did Darius have to do with making all of this regulation for the house of God to be rebuilt? Notice the motivation. That they may pray for the life of the king and his sons. Darius was concerned about prayer of the people of God there in Israel because he knew of the he knew uh, that the he knew that those people there had the God's authority there with them. And we believe a lot of commentators believe that Artaxerxes followed suit with Darius that he, in like fashion, believed in the power of prayer of the people of God, and that's why he made regulations that, likewise, verse 11 and 10, that, well, verse 10, that prayer for the life of the king and his sons may be made there in Jerusalem. Now, this kind of, this might be reminiscent, I don't know if you know the history behind this, but uh, in the setting up of monasteries, a lot of the kings in the medieval area, uh, in the medieval era, they had uh, taken, they had made laws and regulations in support of monasteries. Why? To set aside these marathon people to pray, marathon runners of prayer to pray for the life of the king and his family. 
it's kind of the same thing here. But Ezra endorses this in the book of Ezra. And if you really look carefully at Nehemiah, Nehemiah endorses it as well. So God used a pagan king who believes in the power of prayer of the people of Jerusalem to reestablish and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, I haven't mentioned this yet in going through this entire book, but there is something absolutely, absolutely important. The calling of Jesus Christ is rooted in the rebuilding of, the, of Jerusalem. It is something that is prophesied that it must happen prior to the return of Christ. I want us to turn to Daniel 9. Daniel 9. And I hope you'll see that the great importance of this. Daniel 9, 24 and following. Now, don't focus so much on the, on the 70 weeks at this point. I want you to focus on some of the language of concerning Messiah. Daniel 9, and we'll start at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be 70 weeks and, and 62 weeks. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again. It, again, Jerusalem will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress during the times of Nehemiah. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week in the middle of the week. He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolations. And we'll stop there. So here's what we're going to get from Daniel 9. This is a passage about Messiah coming. Messiah is to come. What's going to happen first? The, the city has to be rebuilt. Okay. But notice what's going to happen when Messiah comes. After the city is rebuilt, there will be a time when Messiah will come. What is he going to do? He's going to make an end of sin. He's going to atone for iniquity and he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. The necessity of the rebuilding of Jerusalem was for all this to happen. There was going to be later on a decree that after the city is going to be rebuilt, a lesser prince would come in um, there's going to be the destruction of the city. Messiah will be cut off for a time, but it doesn't say this, but we know that he was cut off from God for a time and then raised again from the dead and exalted to God's right hand. But then there was going to be the stop of all sacrifices with the destruction of the city. And all of this, 
in, Nehem, in uh, Daniel 9 came to pass. The destruction of the city, the destruction of the temple. Why? Because the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus Christ came. He made the final sacrifice that to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, and it says here to make that covenant with some. That is the glory of the gospel and why all this had to happen and take place first and foremost. Again, in today's text there, God has ordained a division of labor, yet also a unity of purpose for the church. God has ordained a unity of purpose for us as well and a division of labor for us as well. Again, one in ten were selected by a random process. Of course, God is the one in control of who was ultimately selected. But the people who came and supported the work were people of every occupation, rich and poor, ordained and lay persons, all in the necessity of the building up of Jerusalem. Now, in our church today, we need the building up of the church. People of every occupation, rich and poor, lay person and ordained person, all for the necessity of the building up of God's church. Jerusalem had to be rebuilt for the prophecy of Daniel to be fulfilled. That temple, before its destruction, had to be filled again with glory. You remember in the days of Solomon, when Solomon dedicated the temple, it was glorious so much that the priests could not stand to even dwell in there. They had to, they had to depart because the glory was so immense. But there's a greater glory that came into the temple that is discussed in Nehemiah. That glory was the veiled glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of God in Jesus Christ came and filled the holy temple in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You must receive that covenant through him and in him by giving your confession of faith in him that you must believe in him as he's offered in the gospel, that he came in the flesh, that he lived for you, that he died for you, that he was raised from the dead for you, that he ascended to God's right hand, and that he's exalted at, at the right hand of God for you. Jesus Christ came to put an end to sin and to grant you everlasting righteousness if you embrace him by faith. Let's pray together. Our beloved Lord, we do pray that the people um, who hear this message and each one gathered here especially, we ask, O oh Father, that you would help them to embrace Jesus Christ as he's offered in the Holy Gospel. We thank you that all of the things necessary for the fulfillment of the Holy Gospel came into place for the rebuilding of, the, of Jerusalem so that Messiah should come, so that his glory would fill that temple, so that Jesus Christ would come and to suffer a sacrifice, to be rejected by his own so that we would be accepted. Forgive us of our sins, O Lord, and we pray that you would help us to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the Holy Gospel. 
Help us to embrace this blessed Lord Jesus who came to put an end to sin and to grant and to account and reckon his righteousness unto us. For we ask all these things in the name of the blessed Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and turn to 76 as we sing together our um, psalm of dedication. God, the Lord is known in Judah. Let's stand together and sing 76. Seventy-six. 